Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for your son, whom you have uh, indicated just in this reading this morning, that he is set far above the angels, that he alone is your son. We ask that this morning you will open up the eyes of our hearts so that we might understand just a little bit more of who your son is, or that we might gain that great um, vision this morning that comes through uh, the word of God and by your spirit, that we might um, behold your son more clearly, uh, that we ourselves might be transformed by seeing who Jesus Christ is. Help us to understand, help our dull hearing and our weak eyes uh, to grasp by faith who you are and what you have done. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're starting a series in Hebrews. And I think tonight, I think Dave is starting a series in the book of Acts. That's right, Dave? Yep. And so it's kind of like two new things beginning uh, at the same time. So uh, I would encourage you, as I think I may have said last week, I'd encourage you to, if you have time, to spend some time or make some time to read in the book of Hebrews. We're not going to get into it a whole lot this morning because there's a bit of introductory stuff that I want to get to. Um, But we will certainly be in the book of Hebrews in coming weeks And so I would encourage you to to familiarize yourself um, with maybe the first four or five chapters as much as you're able to for the next month or so. So as I said, I've got introductory things to say. And introductory things sometimes um, some of you might think are boring, but nonetheless I think they're important uh, important things to to, uh, deal with. They're not absolutely essential. Um, but they can help us to understand some of the New Testament uh, letters or books a little bit uh, more fully. And uh, so I want to talk about several different things. I want to talk about author, who the author might be um, and some of the issues around that, who was being written to. That is usually the destination of the letter, like Paul's letter to Romans was written, a uh, letter called Romans was written to Christians in Rome. Um, and then a little bit about the date, and, uh, and then we'll get into the text after that. See, I better set my clock up here. Um, so in terms of the author, uh, one of the puzzles of Hebrews is that it's never actually been settled who the author was. Um, but early on in the church, it was found at the end when they would find a, a uh, a, a book, a, a lot of, uh, you know, like a almost full or a full book. Um, Hebrews was put right after Paul's letters, and I think that's still where it is in the, our, our, uh, our New Testaments today. Because there were, they, they thought at first, uh, the first uh, several centuries, they just kind of assumed it was written by Paul. Um, so it was put there, but there were people early on who didn't think it sounded like Paul, even though some of the thought was Pauline concepts. The writing style was uh, different. And so there were from time to time people who would say, well, maybe it was so-and-so and and maybe it was so-and-so. And so so some of those people, 
and uh, ways of looking at Hebrews um, from early on, even though for the most part, for the first 1,500 years or so, was kind of accepted that Paul wrote it. Um, some of the other suggestions were that it was Paul's co-worker Barnabas that wrote it, <clears throat> or one of his co-workers, Clement of Rome, who worked with Paul in Philippi, and I'm going to refer to him in a, in a minute. Uh, people thought that maybe it was Luke who wrote it, or the possibility that Paul had written Hebrews in Hebrew and Luke had translated it into Greek, and that that's one reason it sounds so different from some of Paul's other writings. And then Martin Luther, uh, he put forth the idea that it could have been Apollos who wrote it, the Apollos that you come across in 1 Corinthians. So there's not a, uh, uh, there's, there's not a common sense of this is the one who wrote it and, and that's it. So it's been uh, struggled over. But nonetheless, it found its way into or was recognized to be um, a book of the New Testament. Uh, the destinations, and, and I'm going to comment on that uh, in, in a couple of minutes, how some of those things come about. The destination, just assuming that it was Jewish Christians or Gentile converts to Judaism. So it was people who knew their Old Testament well, people who were attracted to uh, Judaism of the Old Testament, um, but again, not, uh, not specific because it doesn't start like the other epistles where it's dedicated or written to a particular people. But as you begin to look at the book and you, uh, particularly even the last chapter, um, there's a sense that it, that, that it does go to a particular group of people somewhere, not just simply a widespread thing um, as the writer talks about visiting them when he gets a chance, when he gets an opportunity. So uh, it's one, one guess or, or guesstimate, I guess you might say, is that it could have been people, a group of people in Rome. But uh, when you begin to try to rebuild um, the pictures of the, the first century and tie in uh, Bible books or Bible letters, it gets into a bit of speculation at times. So um, that's not really critical. Uh, the content of the letter as we go through it, you'll see that it certainly does deal with certain issues, uh, whoever the group of people was. The date, it's probably written before 70 AD because the temple is spoken of in Hebrews as still being functional. And the temple, uh, and the temple service was destroyed in 70 AD. Uh, there are people who even argue against that, who argue that the writer was, was writing um, as if the temple was functioning, but not, not uh, taking seriously that the temple was functioning. So it gets kind of complicated, but for the most part, most people have thought that it was written before 70 AD um, uh, because of the, uh, the temple. Now, I want to uh, just come back to Clement of Rome for a moment. One of the ways that the New Testament was kind of compiled and put together, and, and I like to say recognized by the church, 
as the, as the uh, word of God, what we call the canon now. Some people like uh, Da Vinci Code said the church just got together and, and decided this, these are the books we want, it, want in it, these are the books we don't, as if that just kind of came out of the blue. But actually the canon was, was recognized over a period of time. And one of the ways that it was recognized is that the, the, the next generation of leaders in Christendom, leaders in the church that came after the apostles, they wrote. They wrote a lot. They wrote letters. They, lo- they wrote treatises, kind of like the apostles did. That was one of the things that, that they did in the, in the uh, early church. They wrote. Uh, uh, elders wrote. Pastors wrote. And they sent letters to each other. Well... This one um, letter that I'm going to read a section of is one of the reasons, or is an example of, of one of the ways in which uh, the, the church recognized the canon, recognized the books of the New Testament. So that you might get one, uh, well, this fellow here that I'm going to read, I, I'm only reading a section of his letter. His letter was written... Uh, let's see, I think it was between three, well, he lived between 30 and, and 100 AD. So he wrote this letter between 30 and 100. And you can argue this way and that way about when he wrote it. it. It's a letter that was written probably after a fairly severe persecution. You get that from the content of the letter. But there were two fairly severe persecutions, one in the late 60s and one in the late 90s of the first century. So some people might, uh, might date uh, this letter and therefore the, the, the impact of that letter upon Hebrews, uh, the date of Hebrews might be different. But um, this, this writer, Clement of Rome, which as far as they can tell is the same Clement that is mentioned uh, as a companion of Paul, working with Paul in Philippi, he's writing to the church. And he's writing to them uh, regard, after a severe persecution. And he writes a letter to encourage them and give them strength and, um, and sympathize with them. But I'm only picking on one little section of this. And the reason is, is because he quotes Hebrews. So if he's quoting Hebrews, then Hebrews, Hebrews is already, uh, the way he quotes it, he's already quoting Hebrews as if Hebrews is something that we need to listen to, that this is the word of God. And he quotes it combining Hebrews, the New Test, a New Testament verse, in other words, a, a verse in Hebrews that we don't have in the Old Testament, as well as uh, verses that come from the Old Testament. So he's dovetailing the, um, the book of Hebrews as a New Testament book with the book of Hebrews as it quotes Old Testament. So um, let me read this to you. And as I said, it, it, is, it is finding or reading all of, the, um, all of these New Testament books within that first, that second generation of Christian leaders that they are able to see, oh, these guys quoted this and they quoted that. We've, so we've, we've got this body of literature which came to be authorized as the New Testament. So he's, let me, let me read this to you, and I'm going to, to pause to draw attention to some things here. If you have Hebrews open, you might want, I'm going to be um, um, 
highlighting a couple of verses there in the first uh, few verses of Hebrews. So this is Clement of Rome, and he is writing. This is way through his letter already. It's not the beginning. He says, This is the way, beloved, in which we find our Savior, even Jesus Christ, the high priest of all our offerings, the defender and helper of our infirmity. By him we look up to the heights of heaven. By him we behold, as in a glass, his immaculate and most excellent visage. By him are the eyes of our hearts opened. By him our foolish and darkened understanding blossoms up anew towards his marvelous light. By him the Lord has willed that we should taste of immortal knowledge. Now here's the quote out of Hebrews. Who, being the brightness of his majesty, is by so much greater than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. That's Hebrews 1, verses 3 and 4. It's taken from there. It's turned around, I think, a little bit, but that, that's it. That, that's not an Old Testament quote. That's a quote from Hebrews. But then he goes on, For it is thus written, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? That is an Old Testament quote that is in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7. So the author of Hebrews is quoting the Old Testament, and this guy who's quoting Hebrews is quoting the same passages that the author of Hebrews is quoting. And then he goes on. But concerning his son, the Lord spoke thus, quote, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the heathen for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. That is both Psalm 2, 7, and 8, and Hebrews 1, 5. And again he says to him, quote, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That is both a quote from Psalm 110 and a quote from Hebrews. So this whole section here is um, Clement of Rome writing a letter, quoting Hebrews, quoting Hebrews as Hebrews quotes the Old Testament. And he's doing the whole thing as it sits in the book of Hebrews. Is that clear or am I muddying the waters? You get that a little bit at least. And then he uh, just finishes up. Uh, But who are his enemies? All the wicked and those who set themselves to oppose the will of God. So there you have an early church, uh, a, a, a letter written in the first century of the church, quoting Hebrews as Hebrews Stands. In other words, he's not, um, he's not just simply quoting Old Testament verses. He's quoting Hebrews and the Old Testament verses that the author of Hebrews quotes right there in his opening, just in the first half a dozen verses. Don't get too hung up on that. That's just uh, hopefully to give you a little bit of a window on how, um, how the study of the New Testament develops, how we can, in the end, have a... Have a, a a, a certainty regarding the um, the New Testament canon. It, it wasn't simply just people deciding we like this, we don't like that, we like this, we don't like that. No, not at all. Um, it it took place over a, a fairly substantial period of time, and the books that were recognized, and I like to put it that they were recognized by the church in an official way, and. The only reason that they did, well, not the only reason, but one reason they did that is because there were people coming up with, I like this list of books, and I really don't like Paul that much, 
so I'll leave him out. And so they would circulate these lists. And so the church realized we need to kind of come up with what the church recognizes. Uh, And this is one way they did it. Well, they recognized books that were already being used by the church. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 1, I just want to do a couple of things this morning as we get into it. We won't won't get past uh, verse 2. Hebrews 1.1. In the past, does somebody want to keep an eye on the time? This obviously is not working. Uh, if, if there's someone here who's timing me this morning, that'll put the pressure on you. There you go. Oh, that, that's working? Okay, very good. Thank you. That, apparently that clock back there is working. Um, so let me read to you the first two verses, and then we're going to pick it apart a little bit. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So I want to make a comment on a number of things here. Um, first of all, thing, and these are things that uh, we just we can't take for granted. These are actually the, the, the things that are mentioned right here in these first two verses are things that our culture, our world our families, members of our family, they don't believe these things to be true at all. In fact, there are many people today who think that these kinds of things are actually impossible. They can't be true. It is impossible for them to be true. And so we're going to unpack this a little bit. First of all, I just want to say that God spoke. God spoke. There are people today who say God can't speak. He can't speak in any. He can't speak in anything uh, that would resemble human language because he's infinite. We're finite. As soon as he speaks, as soon as he speaks, they wouldn't even allow that. But as soon as God might speak human language, you can know that you shouldn't believe it because it's not going to be a true reflection of who God is. The Bible has a very different view of who God is and who we are, and the Bible. Um, pictures God, it, it, it speaks of a God who is able to communicate in human language to human beings whom he has created. Now, on every one of those things I just said, the world will challenge us. First of all, he hasn't created us. We've, we've evolved. Second of all, you can't really know God. Uh, and third, he, he wouldn't communicate to us. He is not a he because we don't know. So uh, all of these things are impossible for the world Um, And as I may have mentioned last week, that kind of pressure, that kind of pressure is on us today. It may not be there. It may not be uh, just simply that someone comes up to your door and knocks on your door and says, I'm an atheist and I don't believe anything you say. No, but you'll you'll have all the subtle hints there. They come through family. They come in the media all the time. They come however they come. These things are there. And in a sense, what it does is it shapes you as a Christian, and it puts you in a particular shape as the world presses on you in different ways. And so the world sees the Christian um, in ways that we don't even want to hear about. I don't really even want to hear at times how the world understands me as a Christian. It's not flattering. Uh, It's not respectful. 
Um, now, I'm not saying that everybody's like that, but in terms of, of the way the world thinks, um, we, are, we are definitely not the same shape we see ourselves as the world sees us. So God spoke. In the past, God spoke. So God spoke uh, in history. And he spoke, uh, let me put this in, in the uh, word order, uh, the Greek word order, uh, Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Many times and many ways in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. So it's, it's here emphasizing the fact that it many, it, it, it many different times and in many ways, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. And he's not talking about many times, many ways, just in just open slather. He's talking about many times in many ways as they are recorded in the Old Testament. In other words, he has read his Old Testament. He reads his Old Testament. He sees how God has spoken to their forefathers at many, at many different times and in many ways. And if you go read your Old Testament, you'll see that's the case. One of the first ones that I, uh, that I thought about, I didn't go and look it up, but was the, and I can't remember, one of you would probably remember it. Remember when uh, somebody had an axe head floating on the water? Uh, who was that? Okay, there you go. Um, you know, that, that's, a, that's an odd thing, isn't it? But it was there to prove a point. Uh, it was substantiating a prophet, I think. Uh, that was the point of it. Um, but um, so he's looking back, and he's not saying open slather in, in any possible way uh, or any, any way that you could conceive of that God has spoken. No, many times in many ways in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the, pro- through the prophets. He emphasizes that, through the prophets. So this speaking, this God speaking, he speaks language. He uses humans to speak language, human language. It's verbal revelation, which means it is verbalized through humans. These humans are moved by the Spirit of God. And God communicates human language in history. Now, again, those things are, are, those are principles, things that we believe as Christians that are... Um, uh, that are not, um, uh, that, that the world today doesn't buy those kinds of things, that God could actually speak in history. And we'll get down to a little bit of that in a moment. Many times and ways through the prophets, and that this speaking, this speaking language was actually recordable. You could write it down in written words, and that's what the Old Testament is, that these prophets um, who spoke they spoke words, and you could write them down. And this understanding of God's communication to humankind is unique in human history. And as I said before, in our current cultural, uh, in our current culture, human wisdom doesn't allow God to speak. It disallows God to speak. I was reading a book called The Gagging of God. And uh, what we've done in our modern world is we've just shut him up. Or perhaps another way that we've gone in our modern culture is more democratically, so it sounds better at first, which basically says, yes, God speaks. He speaks through everybody. 
Everyone can speak for God. No exceptions. So you've got two different ways that it can happen that we end up kind of gagging God. I was referring... um, I was uh, reading in a a book yesterday. It's called God in All Worlds. I'll give you an example of this. This is an an anthology of probably 300-plus written stories, some some maybe just a paragraph long, some of them, you know, 10 pages long, an anthology of contemporary spiritual writing. That's what it's called. People People who would be considered spiritual people writing. Um, from all over the world. And the, the book is called God in All Worlds. And there's a particular section of the book called Revelation. So you, th- you, you begin reading it, you think, oh, they believe in Revelation. They believe in God revealing himself to us. But no, it's a, it's a different kind of Revelation. Um, so that you don't actually find out anything about God revealing himself to humankind in Christ or in the scriptures, it's all uh, records, um, the, the written record, the written testimonies of people's spiritual experiences. That's what this whole section on Revelation is. So Revelation is no longer looking at what does God say to us. Revelation is what in my spiritual experience do I believe Uh, or or how has God revealed himself to me in my spiritual experience. So you have this wide variety of of ecstatic, and not just ecstatic, uh, experiences where people would say God was meeting with me. Um, But that's what it becomes. That's where the authority lies. The authority lies in the human experience, not in God. And um, there was one in particular that I thought was interesting where... um, this uh, fellow was moved particularly by a, um, a painting of Christ. And so he's, he's contemplating this picture of Christ, a painting of Christ. And he goes through this long description of how this painting began to, to, to move and shift. And it's almost like his, his vision became blurry and he began to see things happening that were also happening in his mind, obviously. It wasn't necessarily happening on the wall with the painting in the, in the picture. It was all his experience of what was hap- of, of the picture. And he talks about how the picture of Jesus would sharpen and then it would fade and then it would, would fade into everything else in the world and then it would come back and then... Uh, and just a really, really strange thing. But if you looked at it really closely, in the end, when he was describing the end of, of his experience of this picture, uh, he said, and in the end, when I came back to kind of his normal senses, uh, the picture just went back to being kind of like a, a dead portrait of a, of a guy who has no life in him. And if you, if you look at it really closely, you'd see that in the whole thing, he was cr- critiquing the church he is critiquing any idea that we could actually talk about Jesus Christ as an individual with truth in the conversation. Um, so this whole idea of revelation in terms of modern spirituality, what we're talking about in Hebrews has nothing to do with the kind of revelation that people talk about in modern spirituality. 
revelation there is simply personal experience. And then our claim or my claim or your claim, God is revealing himself to me in the personal experience that I have. That's not what's being spoken about here. Uh, Will experiences come? Of course they will. But what he's saying here is that God has spoken to us. And he has spoken to us in very specific ways. And human language is, uh, is the way that God has spoken to us. And it's human language that has then been written down and we can go and we can read it and, um, and be certain about it. Now he goes on, and I'll finish up here with verse 2, just uh, making, a few, I'm making a few observations. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So if you contrast that with verse 1, in the past, so in past history, from the perspective of the writer, in the past history, in past history, God spoke, and it's literally to our fathers. He spoke to our fathers, our forefathers, through the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Um, you can find the use of that term, the last days, through the New Testament. Um, And what it's referring to is that God's redemption of the human race is in its last days, the last days of history in terms of God's work of redemption. Because his work of redemption has been completed in Christ. There is not another thing that God has to do in order for us to have redemption. And we actually live in an age where the message of redemption is proclaimed. The work of redemption is finished. And yet when I say that, you know that it's, it's still not complete because the judgment has not occurred. But the work of redemption is finished for us in the sense that it is proclaimed. We come to faith in Christ. We hear the gospel message. And then we stand at a time when there is another event, but it is the termination of history in judgment. That's the next thing that happens. And that's one of the big themes, or that's one of the main themes in Hebrews, is he's telling these people, you need to listen. You need to listen to this message. God spoke in the past this way, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So there's a sense of urgency when he's talking about the last days. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking so much about what many of us think of the latter days or the latter rain or whatever it might be, where we think of somehow the last days are, are either just starting or we're in them or they're just about to happen. Or, you know, it's a common greeting or it's not a common greeting. It's a common comment amongst Christians now to say, uh, to talk about how we think the Lord will return at, at any time, which is a real possibility. Some of you have more convictions about that than others. Um, but, but, but what I'm saying is that the guy who wrote Hebrews thinks he is in the last days. And he is saying, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, so that all of the prophets of the old covenant are fulfilled in Christ, and they are also brought to bear witness to him. He is the one with the ultimate authority. 
So these prophets have been speaking about his coming. Jesus comes and he says, these prophets were speaking about me and I am here and now you need to listen to me. That's paraphrasing uh, the first few verses here. So the last days of history, uh, what I mean, or the last days uh, is the last days of history in terms of redemption. What is the next great act of God in history? He's not going to send another prophet. The son has spoken. He's not going to send. Uh, there's, there's many new religions that have started in the last hundred years less. And, and most of them start with another prophet. They got another prophet. Mormonism has a prophet who actually spoke to an angel, supposedly. I mean, that's his claim. So he's claiming angelic authority for his prophecy. That's Joseph Smith and the founding of Mormonism. And a passage like this, that's, this says, no, no way. How, how would you have another prophet if God has spoken to us in these last days by his son? And then the next couple chapters, which we'll get into later, will bring, a, bring out the authority of the son, the authority that the son has. He has spoken. There's a finality in the way he even puts it. He has spoken to us by his son. Listen, listen, listen to his son. There's a finality. There's no more revelation from God that puts itself on equal with Christ or above Christ. There's no angels. There's no men. There's no church councils that can presume to speak for God. Jesus the Son has spoken. Hebrews emphasizes the authority of Christ speaking to us. The author draws attention to the present reality of God. It's interesting. This only happens in the book of Hebrews. Most of the time when you get an Old Testament quote, and there are plenty of them in Hebrews, there's I think over 20, 25, something like that, where where it might say, we're used to it saying, it is written. You'll find that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It is written. You don't find that in Hebrews because the author of Hebrews is tying this book in, the book of Hebrews, he's tying it in with what he has just said that Jesus has spoken to us by his son. He's, he's emphasizing the speech, the speaking of the son. So when he quotes the Old Testament, and I'm just going to give you uh, maybe half a dozen of these. I'm not going to go and do all the rest. And, and all of these are actually in chapter one. So the way he introduces an Old Testament quote, he doesn't say it is written. He just said, did God ever say? Ver, uh, verse five, verse six, he says, verse seven, he says, verse eight, he says, verse 10. He also says, verse 13, did God ever say? He talks about God speaking. Did God say? This is what God said. He says this. He also says this. He doesn't go with the normal, uh, with the normal, uh, it is written. He just says, God said this. God said this. He has spoken to us in these last days by his son. You need to listen is what he's saying to the Hebrews. And so in terms of, uh, I'll finish off with this, just in terms of your own relationship with Jesus Christ, Do you hear God speaking to you in the scriptures? Do you listen to him? Or do you listen more to the words of men or the speculations and imaginations of your own mind? Do those things become more important 
or with more authority or more convincingness than listening to the scriptures, than listening to the son speak. We are to listen to the son speak. And I'll finish with this. It's, over, it's actually taken over from over in chapter two. Uh, and we're going to back up into chapter one next week. But just to finish with this, Hebrews chapter two, verse one. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. And he's talking about the gospel and he's talking about the son speaking so that we do not drift away. We need to listen to what the son says. We need to listen to him. There's no greater authority. He is the one who communicates to us with his words through the New Testament by his spirit, and also he communicates to us, he speaks to us that way, but he also has done the works of redemption, which then he addresses us and says, these are the works of redemption, this is the meaning of redemption, this is how you become redeemed. All of those things are the things that the Son speaks to us. And if someone, some prophet, I don't care what they're going to call themselves, if someone comes along and says, eh, maybe not. Well, didn't you hear that he also said such and such? Da-da-da-da-da. No. Just don't buy it at all. I just want to encourage you, as it says here, to pay more careful attention to the son. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your son. We thank you that you have engaged us in such a way that We don't have to try to get into heaven to understand you. We don't have to die to understand you. We can simply listen to your son. We can know the way of salvation in him. You call us to faith in Christ. I pray that you will help us to respond to his call in the gospel by faith, trusting in him and in him alone. We pray in his name. Amen.